Picking up where we left off um, in Numbers 24. Um, Some of you weren't here when we started our series in Numbers, so let me just give you a a very quick overview of the book. So Numbers tells the story of two generations of God's people. Uh, The first generation of God's people, who God uh, saved from Syrian bondage in Egypt, led through the Red Sea, killed and crushed all their enemies, brought to Mount Sinai, gave them the law uh, through Moses, and then he led them uh, to the edge of the promised land. In fact, when I picked up this series from my predecessor, Andy Pearson, we picked things up just as the first generation were right there on the edge of the promised land, preparing to go in. But the sad story was they did not go forward in faith, but backward in unbelief. And so God said, for their disobedience, they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so from uh, chapter 13 and 14 all the way through to chapter uh, 19, we've been wandering with them in the wilderness. And the story has been God's people just keep on rebelling and revolting against God and against God's appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. When we got to chapter 20, it, it really signaled the ending of the first generation of God's people. So chapter 20 uh, was bookended with the deaths of Aaron and Miriam, Moses' siblings. And right in the heart of chapter 20 was Moses' demise. Remember, he got angry and he struck the struck the rock. And as we move to chapter 21 and 2 and 3 and 4, God's people found themselves encamped once again in the plains of Moab, at the River Jordan. And this is where God's people will be encamped for the rest of the book of Numbers until Joshua, when they cross the River Jordan and enter the Promised Land. Now, when we get to chapter 26, we will officially leave the first generation behind. Moses will be dead, and we will really run with the second generation. But tonight we've got one more chapter. It's really the ending, uh, the beginning and the, really the, the beginning and the end for the beginning of for ch- um, the second generation and the end for the first generation, because this is God's going to strike down twenty four thousand in one day in a plague. One of the things uh, as we come to this chapter that I need you to know is that back in chapters twenty three and twenty four. God used a pagan prophet to bless the Israelites. Remember Balaam? He'd been enlisted by Balak, the king of the Moabites, who had teamed up with the Midianites. Balak wanted these Israelites who were living on his, Balak wanted these Israelites living on his land in Moab to be done away with. And so he enlisted the help of Balaam. And Balaam came And as he was making his way to Moab, the angel of the Lord stopped him on his donkey. And it was through his donkey that God spoke sense to him. And so when Balaam arrived and he stood on the mountaintops, instead of cursing God's people, he blessed God's people. And he blessed God's people by saying this, you are going to receive an abundance of blessing in the promised land. You're going to receive a land that is fertile and fruitful. You're going to 
have children and their children are going to have more children. You're going to expand and you're going to grow. You're going to be rich with an abundance of many things. And Balaam also, this pagan, was used by God to say, and from you will come the Messiah. So chapter 23 and 24 ends with God's great blessing upon his people Israel. Now here we are, chapter 25. Let's read it. You can have your Bible open to Numbers chapter 25. Father, as we come to your word, we pray for your spirit's help, both in understanding and in applying this passage to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may know the name uh, Gordon Wenham. He is a very well-known Reformed British Old Testament scholar. Uh, he studied at Cambridge. He has uh, taught at Queen's in, in, in Northern Ireland. Very gifted and very helpful when it comes to understanding the Old Testament. Well, he once wrote these words. The Bible often startles its readers by the way it juxtaposes the brightest revelations of God and his grace against the darkest of sins and actions of his people. Let me say that again. The Bible often startles its readers by the way it juxtaposes the brightest revelations of God and his grace against the darkest of sins and actions of his people. So just stand back from the Bible and think about that for a moment. Genesis Chapters 1 and 2, God reveals himself to be the glorious creator of this world. He makes this world in six days. He makes paradise, Eden. He places perfect man and woman in it, Adam and Eve. He says to them, enjoy it, have dominion over it. He walks with them. He talks with them. He says, there's only one thing, don't eat the forbidden fruit. You turn to Genesis chapter 3 and what happens? Adam and Eve plunge headlong into sin. Story of Noah. God saves Noah and his family from the flood. God makes this incredible covenant promise with Noah. What happens when Noah gets off the ark? He lays drunken in his tent. What about Exodus? Think of God. He liberates his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He leads them through the Red Sea. He defeats their enemies. And they're not even far away. And they begin grumbling and rebelling against God and asking to go back. There on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the law. And there at the foot of Mount Sinai, God's people build a golden calf. Think Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 7, God makes the most incredible covenant with King David, a man after his own heart. You turn a couple of chapters, and there's a man who's after God's own heart, committing adultery with Bathsheba and orchestrating the death of Uriah. Gordon Wenham's right. The brightest revelations of God and his grace are often juxtaposed against the darkest sins of his people. And that's what we find here in Numbers. 
In chapters 24, 23 and 24, God has just given through this pagan prophet Balaam these extraordinary prophecies of blessing. And you turn the page and you get to chapter 25 and God's people are yoking themselves to the false god of Baal. Wenham also writes, in this way, Scripture tries to bring home to us the full wonder of God's grace in face of man's incongruable propensity to sin. We're going to look at this passage under three headings. Israel's seduction, God's judgment, and Phineas's atonement. Or Phineas's action. So let's look at Israel's seduction, verses 1 through 3. The passage begins by reminding us that Israel lived in Shittim. So they're here, and they're going to be here for quite some time. This is the 40th year of the first generation's wandering in the wilderness. God has made it clear this generation will only live for 40 years, and they'll be done. And as we find them there living in the plains of Moab, going about their business, having just heard the glorious promises and blessings of God, We read in verse 1, the people began to whore, that is to indulge in sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. And immediately this should shock us. How, How is this possible? Here's God's covenant people. Here's God who's blessed them so richly, led them out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, given them his law. Provided for them time and time again. And yet here they are indulging in sexual immorality. Now what's fascinating to know is that up until this point in Numbers, every time God's people have sinned, it's come internally. That is, it's been of their own doing. This time, we know that the daughters of Moab came to them to seduce them. And they were successful. Um, so how do we know the, da- the daughters of Moab came to seduce them? Well, if you've got your Bible there, you could, if you wanted, turn to Numbers chapter 31. Numbers 31. And in verse 16, we read, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, talking about the daughters of Moab, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Then take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, page 1128, verse 14, or 129. Revelation 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So here's what you need to understand. Israel was seduced through Balaam. Balaam, this pagan prophet who was used by God as an instrument to pronounce the the great uh, blessings of prophecy, turned to Balak just before he left and said, I might not have been able to curse Israel. I had to bless Israel. But there is a way you can get Israel. 
get your daughters to go into their land and seduce them. And one sin led to another sin. Look at verse 2 of 25. These Moabites invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people, meaning the people of Israel, ate and bowed down to their gods. Verse 3, this is the most shocking verse. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. You know what Israel did? Made a covenant with Baal. This wasn't just one or two. We keep on reading this phrase again and again. The people, the people, then Israel did this. This is shocking. This is scandalous. And I think that, you know, in a passage like this, the thing that's going to shock us and the thing that we're going to think scandal is when a guy goes in and kills two people caught in the act of having sex. That's not the shocking thing. That's not the thing that should make us feel squeamish. This should make us feel shocked and squeamish. God's covenant people turning their backs on God. Turning to a false God. Turning to the God of Baal. Now there is a tragic irony to them yoking themselves with Baal. Now there's more than one Baal. This is actually the first time we read about, well, Baal's, it's used as a name earlier on in, in uh, the Pentateuch, but this is the first time we, we have an encounter where Israel uh, start worshipping Baal. And this is going to be the story here on in. But with the, the Baals, the false gods, the various Baals, depending on which area they represented, had different things connected to them. So the god of Baal of Peor represented the god of fertility, the god of wealth and prosperity and material blessing. Now here's the tragic irony. In chapters 23 and 24, God just said to his people, I'm going to bless you upon with many blessings when you get in the promised land. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to be fertile. You're going to produce children after children after children. The nation's going to grow. You're going to build homes. You're going to establish yourself in this amazing land. God's people hear this amazing promise that is theirs and they turn their backs on the true and living God for a false God. They turn their backs on the true promises of God for the false promises of Baal and sin. Why were God's people so easily seduced? Let me turn that question on you. Why is it you're so easily seduced? Like, why do you and I sin? Like, this morning we've been thinking about the fact that we're in Christ Jesus. Why is it as those who are united to Christ Jesus, you and I find it so easy at times in our life to do the things we shouldn't do? Because the reality is, as sinful people with the flesh, we want immediate gratification rather than to wait for God's blessing. We want tangible pleasure and to wait by faith for the pleasure of God. We want it right now, not sometime later. 
And so we stop living by faith and we start living by sight. We stop trusting God's promises and we start trusting our flesh and promises of sin. That's why we succumb. What's fascinating is God's people succumb to sexual immorality and idolatry here. And this passage is picked up in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, who under the guidance of the Holy Spirit wants to apply this passage to the church in Corinth, their life. So take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples. It's page 957. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now the diligent among you will note that Numbers chapter 25 says 24,000 fell that day. So how do you explain the contradiction? Calvin's simple answer. Moses rounded up. Paul rounded down. About 24,000, 23,000 fell that day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands. Take heed. Lest he fall. Paul's point to apply what happens here in Numbers 25. To our life is to say this. Christian. As you study this passage where God's people have been blessed by God and then they turn their backs on God and succumb to sexual immorality and then idolatry, you need to take heed. Because this is where you're vulnerable. This is where we, these are the sins that we often succumb to. Humanity's never changed. The promises of Baal of Peor, wealth, health, abundance, sex, are the things that often captivate and capture our hearts. You might say here, well, hold on a minute. I don't unite myself to other people. I don't go snooping around. Why is it that the statistics show that the the same numbers of people in churches and those who are outside of churches are frequent users to pornography. Because there's a major lust problem. You might say, I don't unite myself with someone else, but you might have a raging lust problem. Idolatry, you might say, oh, I'm not an idolater. I don't bow down to statues. How many of you are captivated and captured by the idol that is money? That is material possessions. You might say, oh, well, I really am not. Some of you, you think you have money, but money has you. 
You think you have material possessions, but they have you because you want more and more of it. And you think, if I just get more and more of it, then I'll be satisfied. The reality is, is you're believing the false promise that these things could ever satisfy, will never satisfy. And Paul says here very carefully, we need to take heed that we don't be drawn into the same things, the same evil that they were drawn into. Now the question is, so how is it that we can keep ourselves from being seduced by the false promises of sex and money and materialism? See, some of the times that the reason we so quickly indulge in them, some of the times we so give ourselves to these things is because we want instant gratification. We want pleasure in the moment. We stop living by faith and we start living by sight. And so the only way that we can keep on standing is if we are enamored by Jesus, enamored by him, if we make him our magnificent obsession, if we keep our eyes fixed and focused on him and see that he is far better than anything this world could ever offer us. As Thomas Chalmers, a great free church preacher of a bygone era, used to say, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. We need to be enamored by Jesus. See, when you're not enamored by Jesus, you will easily succumb to sex and all manner of idolatry. Now, let's be really clear. Sex, Sex in the right context is a good thing. Money used in the right way is a good thing. Material things is a good thing. The problem with our sinful hearts is that we often make them God things. And they capture us, and they captivate us. Interestingly, if you just go back to Roman, uh, to First Corinthians chapter ten, and you look at verse thirteen, here's some good news. In that same passage, it says we need to take heed: no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape. You may be able to endure it. You know the way of escape? Jesus. Eyes fixed and focused on him. Trusting in his spirit's power. Resting in him and in him alone. So Israel was just... Now let's think about God's judgment. Go back to Numbers chapter 25 and look at halfway through verse 3. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God's people's sin was serious. It was a flagrant sin. Those of you who have been here for the previous studies in Numbers, we've spoken in the past about high-handed sin. Here's an example of high-handed sin. Hoarding with the Moabites yoking themselves with Baal. Now, we know, because it's been impressed upon us in numbers, that God is holy and he is just. And so when God's people behave sinfully, 
and rebel against them, God is not indifferent. He's grieved by his people's sin. Now, God is also, as we were thinking about this morning, God of, of, of love and mercy and grace. But one of the things that when you're reading through scripture, you need to know is that God often varies how he reveals himself. Not that God changes. God is always the same in of himself. But in certain moments of redemptive history, he, he reveals aspects of his character. So in this instance, he reveals his holiness and his justice, his perfect hatred of sin with an intensity. And his purpose is to awaken those who are listening to him to the reality of defying him. So look at what God's anger led him to say to Moses, verse 4. And the Lord said, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. God says that his righteous anger burns against the sin of Israel. And the way that atonement will be made is that the leaders, the representatives of each of the tribes, will pay. It's on their heads. Now, in the context of the Old Testament, federal headship, representative leadership, we're familiar with. God says, this is how it's going to go down. My wrath will only be stopped when the ringleaders... Either those who were guilty of committing themselves and leading their own tribes into the sin, or even those who did nothing when their own people went after the Moabite women. All of the leaders are to be put to death. If you remember, when Moses was at the mountain receiving the law, and the people of God were at the bottom of the mountain putting all their gold in a fiery furnace to create the golden calf. You'll remember that Aaron was supposed to be overseeing the people. He's supposed to be the leader of God's people. And when Moses comes down furious, Aaron kind of says, I told the people to burn up their gold and, and then out popped the golden calf. It's like he takes no responsibility as a leader. History repeats itself. And there's this, there's this real tragedy, right? The older some leaders get, sometimes they just start to lose their way. Here's Moses, the great leader of God's people. We sung about him tonight that he, he, if he hadn't stood in the place on previous occasions, God's people would have been wiped out. And you read the next verse, and Moses changes God's instruction. Look at verse 5. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, this, this even greater tier of leadership, each of you will kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. God didn't say that. God said, kill the leaders. And now Moses says, um, just kill the men who went out and yoked themselves. Instead of a covenantal punishment in which the family heads were to be held responsible for the rebellion of those under the care, Moses advocated for a policy of individual punishment. And this echoes back to the events of the Exodus. Strange, Moses seems to be paralyzed into inaction. 
just like his brother Aaron, we have a failure here to discipline God's people. Now, I want you to know that because of the failure, God at that moment brought a plague on the people. And at that moment, people were dropping dead. God started to kill those guilty within the camp. Chronologically, the way these verses read, that, that it doesn't become clear when did God start the plague. You need to go to Psalm 106, which says that Phineas took action against the ungodliness so that the deadly plague was halted, and you kind of get the order of events. But what we need to understand is, is God's plague is now killing the people. And God's people are all gathered at the tent of meeting, and they are weeping with Moses. They're repenting. Like they know that people are dying and it's because of their rebellion and sin. Now, there's different ways that commentators have read this section, but one thing, and I tend to be in agreement in the commentators who say this, as God's people are standing at the entrance of the tent of meeting, two people walk right into the midst of the camp. One of them is an Israelite, and the other one is a Midianite. The Israelite's a male, the Midianite is a female. Some commentators, the view that I don't take, think that they walked into their own tent, the man's own tent, because it said it went to his family. And other commentators say the Israelite took the Midianite and took her right in to the tent of meeting. Now, the reason people... The case to be made for that view is that this was done before the whole of the congregation. And you need to know that the tent of meeting was right in the heart of Israel as they they were camped in the land. So people's tents were scattered all around. So for this to be done in front of everybody has to be the tent of meeting. It's why it's such an outrageous sin As God's people are weeping and repenting because people are dying, in walk this Israelite with his Midianite in arm and they go right in to the tent of meeting and there they start consummating their relationship. It's abhorrent. It's shocking. And the even greater tragedy is this. Moses stands back and does nothing. No one does anything. People are dying. And now, because no discipline's been exercised, this Israelite thinks I'm free to sin. Nothing's going to happen. And so we move from God's judgment to Phineas' action. There's a young priest. And he sees this fellow Israelite walk with his Midianite in hand, into the tent of meeting, and he follows after them with his spear. And he thrusts it through them as they're in the act. Psalm 106. But when Phineas took action and ungodliness defied, then the deadly plague was halted and his deed was ratified. 
Look at verse 6 with me. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Young Phineas, who had a jealousy and a zeal for the honor and the glory of God, was a young priest who mediated between God and his people, and through his action, atonement was made. God's wrath was halted it was turned away and when we read here 23 24,000 people died the first generation is coming to its end and just so you know God's been faithful to his promise this generation will not enter the promised land even the sin of God's people cannot thwart God's purposes The sin of God's people cannot thwart God's blessings for his people. And what's amazing is, is this one generation is dying off. Do you know who Phinehas is? He's the grandson of Aaron. He's the son of Eliezer. He's of the line of Levites. He's a priest. He's one of the second generation and he gives us hope for the future people of God because they ain't standing back they're zealous for God's honor they're jealous for God's glory and they're faithful to God's purposes look at what the Lord said to Moses regarding Phineas. Phineas, the son of Eleazar son of Moses the priest has turned back my wrath from the people in that he was jealous of my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. As we admire Phineas's action, we need to see that even in the promise that God made with him, the covenant of peace that he was saying to Phineas, from your line, as we, we learn in Chronicles, will be the line of the high priests. You see, Phineas's blessing and Phineas's action that made atonement is preparing the ground and pointing us forward to Jesus, the great high priest who will mediate between us and God. Jesus made atonement by taking upon himself the sin of his people. Jesus made atonement because he was jealous jealous for the justice of God. He was zealous for the justice of God. God's justice has to be satisfied. But Jesus as well was loving 
with his Father and love with the people so to provide salvation and redemption of the people, he died in our place for our sin. And so as we, we see the actions of Phineas here in Numbers, he is pointing us forward to the great high priest himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as we wrap this up, verses 14 to the end prepare us for what is to come for the second generation. God's people are going to be in constant conflict with the Midianites and the Moabites. And so God says, harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor. And church, just as we we leave, leave off with that note, I want to say, if we can spiritualize this text for a minute, you and I need to make sure that see the sin, or the, tempta- the, the things that tempt us to seduce us, we need to be killing them. We need to be putting to death the things that, take us away from the Lord because they will kill our spiritual life. They will rob us of our peace. They will take away our joy in the Lord and our sweetness of fellowship. And here God's people have been told, as you prepare to go forward in faith, you need to address that which you've taken away from me. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we stand humbled at your word. We stand in many ways amazed, shocked, speechless. We're speechless because when we look at the actions of Israel, we're, we have a mirror held before us and we see ourselves. You've blessed us so richly in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've saved us and you've redeemed us and yet so often we can so easily turn our backs on you and give ourselves to immorality and idolatry. God, we we stand amazed because when we think of your wrath being averted from us, it was your son who died in our place and for our sin. And can it be that my God should die for me? God, we want to pray that as we seek to live for you in these days, we we thank you that there's nothing that can thwart your promises. There's nothing that can thwart your purposes. Nothing that can stop your blessings for your people. And so as we live for you, we pray that we would be killing sin so that sin would not be killing our relationship with you. God, thank you that you are faithful and that you provide a way out when temptation greets us so that we may endure. And so we pray, O God, that you would open up our eyes of faith wide open to Jesus so that our eyes would be fixed and focused on him. Help us to live by faith in your promises and not by sight and not in dependence of the flesh. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.